The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. Now what's the word? Democracy. Yeah, what's the word? Democracy. Now what's the word? Democracy. Yeah, what's the word? Democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow will spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. Welcome, everyone, to Election Connection. I'm your host, Ruth Newman. And today, we have on our show some important items that we're going to discuss that are going to be on the November ballot that we'll be voting on. And you can actually view a sample ballot for your district right now by typing into your search engine GoVoteKY.com and selecting sample ballot. Now the second part of that ballot is what we're going to focus on today. You'll see that there are two state constitutional amendments up for a vote. And they're quite long-winded with lots of legalese. But fortunately for us, we have with us today Dee Pregliasco to help us unpack these two rather long, torturous amendments. Dee is a retired attorney. She's former president of the Louisville League of Women Voters. She's current vice president of the Kentucky League of Women Voters. Also, she is a mediator and teaches at the Brandeis School of Law. So uh, let's start with constitutional amendment number one. This proposed amendment, also known as Marcy's Law and referred to as the Crime Victims Bill of Rights, has already been enacted, I'm told, in 13 other states. And it was first passed in California in 2008. And according to one pro-Marcy's Law website, Kentucky is one of only 15 states that does not provide crime victims with constitutional level protections. So we're going to start with this one. First of all, welcome. It's so good having you, Dee. And I think I'm going to begin the first sentence, kind of give us an idea of what we're in for. Here is the first sentence of that proposed amendment to secure for victims of criminal acts of public offenses, justice and due process, and to ensure crime victims a meaningful role through the criminal and juvenile justice systems of victim as defined by law, which takes effect upon the enactment of this section and which may be expanded by the General Assembly, shall have the following rights, which shall be respected and protected by law in a manner no less vigorous than the protections afforded to the accused in the criminal and juvenile justice systems. And then there's a colon, <laughs> and it continues on for quite some time. Anyway, it's very, in my opinion, very confusing. <laughs> what do you think of the way they handle a victim 
and a crime, do they ever define, they say in here, a victim as defined by law, which takes effect, of, and then they go on and on, but do they ever really define what they mean by a victim? Well, let's go back, Ruth. This amendment was actually passed in 2018 by 63% of Kentucky voters. However, it was challenged by a defense group, and it was actually thrown out by the, our state Supreme Court on a unanimous vote because what was not done is there was just sort of a summary given. There wasn't actual text of the amendment so that people who were voting on it could read all of the words of the amendment. Uh, and so that's why it, it was thrown out. I'm going to be very upfront at the very beginning and tell you that I do not support this law. I, you know, I don't want to in any way not say that based upon what I'm going to say. Uh, and that is that it's very confusing the way it's written. Even for me, I'm a lawyer and I read it and I've read it several times and it's just very, very, very confusing. Okay. Part of the issue is this. First off, Kentucky may be only one of 15 states that doesn't have this law, but that in and of itself does not mean that the law is a law that we need. Um, my information is that there have been problems with it in many of the states that have passed it. But let's go back to what I want to say about it, and that is this. Kentucky has a Victim's Bill of Rights, and as a former prosecutor, while this Victim's Bill of Rights came after I was a prosecutor, I do know, I worked in Dave Armstrong's office, we were very cognizant of making sure that our victims were communicated with, knew what was going on, were helped when they had to come to court. Uh, what happened later years, based upon, and you might remember in the Mary Byron Project, what was set up was so that victims would know, for example, if attackers or people who had in any way harmed them, you know, we're going to get out of jail. Because what happened in that case, Mary Byron was killed in the parking lot uh, out at the mall when she got off work by her former boyfriend. Uh, and she didn't know he'd gotten out of jail. And so that was the push toward that. The victims uh, should know, and they are now alerted uh, when, for example, if they take out a warrant or there's a charge or an indictment against, a, say, a, a former boyfriend or a current boyfriend or whoever it might be, they're informed if they are released from jail. So I think that there are protections for victims in that victims do have a right to obviously work with the prosecutors to be informed of all of the processes that are going on and they are even under Kentucky law allowed to give a victim impact statement when sentencing occurs. Now, so why would though I be uh, opposed to this? What it appears to me is, and I think we need some background here. When there's a criminal case, it is the state of Kentucky versus the defendant, whoever that is. Let's, let's say that's John Doe. It's the state of Kentucky versus that defendant. That means that the state of Kentucky is representing not only the state, but the victim of the particular crime, whatever it might be. So that victim has access to, obviously, the prosecution. And the prosecution can't go forward 
on that case without the victim. You know, in that sense, they need the victim. There, there's some exceptions to that. You actually can prosecute somebody for uh, even on murder if, if there's no body or, uh, you know, those kinds of things, or if there have been prior statements that have been made under oath, uh, even though, for example, the, the witness might disappear. So what I'm saying to you is that because the state is sponsoring this action or prosecuting this action, I think that that's all that's needed. Why I think that the amendment goes too far is it really, uh, what I would say, interjects into the process as if the victim is a separate party to this lawsuit. Yet this isn't a civil case. This is a criminal case and actually sets up rights for that victim's attorney to participate in the case that I think should not be allowed. It doesn't mean that, that the victim can't have an attorney to represent them, but that they are not the prosecutor of this case. So if this constitutional amendment were to go through, here is what the Kentucky Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers has to say about it. It provides that a complaining victim can hire her own lawyer. So, a wealthy complaining witness will have the ability to hire her own counsel to participate in the case if she perceives that the prosecutor is not adequately protecting her interests. Under the proposed amendment, what if the complaining witness is poor and cannot afford to hire a lawyer yet wants to take advantage of this option? This amendment offers no way to enable them to do so. The results will amplify what unfortunately exists too often in our courts today. Those with money wield their influence and pay a lawyer to further their interests, while those who do not have to fend for themselves and hope that they have a good prosecutor on the case. I, I think one of the things to look at it is if there are things with the Victim's Bill of Rights that don't seem to be working, then the General Assembly ought to look at that and look at that Victim's Bill of Rights and say, do we need to add some things to that Bill of Rights to make this work better? Uh, and that needs to be uh, dealt with before we have this uh, constitutional amendment. So that's sort of a general uh, view of it. Well, let me ask you one quick question. Tell me, where does that Victim's Bill of Rights reside right now? What legal document is it in? Well, it was, if I remember, it was in uh, Senate Bill 15. But um, we do have. Yes, we have a Victim's Bill of Rights, yes. I believe that Title 38, Chapter 421 of the Kentucky Statutes defines and enumerates crime victim rights as well as witness protection. They have a right to timely notice of the proceedings, okay, to be heard if the Defendant's going to be released from jail, like I said, or when there's going to be a plea, uh, when there's going to be sentencing. Uh, obviously, they can be at, at trial because most of the times they are going to be testifying. And they obviously have the right to consult with the Commonwealth and county attorneys. Okay. Uh, the prosecutor offices all have victims' advocates. Okay, uh, and those advocates are assigned to the victims in these uh, criminal cases. And 
probably one of the issues if there are counties in Kentucky where they don't have victims advocates, are we talking about resources? One of the criticisms of this amendment too is that there's no provision for any resources. So for example, if we need to have more resources to the Commonwealth's attorneys and the county attorneys uh, so that they can hire if they don't have them or maybe they need to hire more victim advocates, there's no provision in this constitutional amendment for any kind of funds that relate uh, to that issue. So that, that would be very important. The Kentucky Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers also points out, and here I'm quoting, if the voices of complaining witnesses are not being heard, it is because prosecutors and judges are not following the statutes that already protect these rights. The solution is not to create a constitutional amendment that weakens your constitutional rights if you, a friend or family member, is accused of a crime. Instead, if these rights are not being respected, the answer is for judges and prosecutors to protect complaining witnesses, victims, by making sure that the statutory rights currently in existence are enforced. I think, too, we have to be very careful. You know, our system is famous for and known for the fact that not only are you innocent until proven guilty, but one of the expressions is it's better for a guilty person to go free than for us to put lots of innocent people in jail. I think we have to be very, very, very careful because when the prosecution brings a charge against someone, that's all it is. It's just a charge. And so we give our defendants, who could be you and me, okay, heaven forbid, but that the burden is on the state to prove all of that. That's why we have the, have the right that you don't have to testify against yourself, because the burden is on the state, the prosecution, to prove that whatever they claim you did, uh, you did. So I think that we need to not dilute that by adding what I think is an unnecessary layer by actually giving the victims sort of what I would call party status. You know, in a lawsuit, you might have two or three different parties. They're suing each other or whatever. I don't think we should do that in the criminal justice system. So I'll stop there because you may have some comments or questions or. Well, I'm curious if I'm hoping you know the answer to this. <laughs> I'm curious to know what is the reasoning behind Marcy's law? Why are there so many proponents of it? And why has it passed in so many states? What do they think is deficient in our current law that they feel needs to be fixed? Well, I'll tell you what, I think there are a couple, a couple of things. Let me say this. First off, I don't know in those other states, I can't tell you, do they have victims' bills of rights? And maybe they didn't. So I don't know that. So that certainly could be a factor. I also think it's a perfect example of how we as the public can become outraged about some specific set of facts. And then because of that, we sort of all get on the bandwagon for some change. And sometimes that I think that's necessary, but sometimes that's not. And so I don't know what the impetus uh, was in these other states. And I will tell you, I have to be very honest, primarily because I haven't had time, 
obviously I remember when Marcy's Law and that name obviously is associated with a specific factual incident. I can't tell you, and I apologize for that at this moment, what was that particular case about? But that's why that, that happens is again, there's a specific incident. People get are upset about it. So people get on the bandwagon. We have to change things. And then of course uh, that can spread. And it may be working in some of these other states, though I do have some information that it's caused uh, problems in some of these other states. It's caused some delays. In other words, the proceedings have gone on longer than they uh, should have because of the delays. There have been some issues uh, of denying or delaying bail hearings. And, And we have to be real careful about that. Again, you're innocent until proven guilty. And so we have some bail reform problems in our country where, you know, people don't have enough money to put up even just a small amount of bail. Uh, and so they languish in jail until there can be a trial. Uh, sometimes we find out that people wind up pleading guilty just so they can get out of jail and then they owe money. So there are just all kinds of, of reasons uh, there that could affect the whole situation. Yeah, I I went on to their website, the Marcy's Law website, and one of the things that they were complaining about was that when there was a violation, when a a victim was not informed of of a hearing or a meeting, they didn't have any recourse. They all they would get was an apology, and that this constitutional amendment would force the government to do a do-over if somebody was not there, a victim was not there, was not notified, then the government would be forced to do a do-over, to do another another hearing or whatever it would be. And they said it was a, a, it's a difference between a victim rights and victim legal standing, that under the constitution, the victim would have legal standing and that as things stand now, they, they only have rights that can be trampled upon according to them. Mm-hmm. Well, except we know legal, you can, you can trample upon someone's legal standing also. Obviously, there uh, there are always issues within the system in regards to all manner of things. Did they get their subpoena to show up in court? Did they move and didn't get it? Did somebody fail to send it out? So, for example, right now, in a case, for example, that is in district court, they subpoena the witnesses. If the witnesses don't show up, then that case can be continued, depending upon how many times the witnesses don't show up. And sometimes we know that people just don't show up, too. I guess it's one of those things. What, what's the question about using a sledgehammer to hit the nail instead of just a hammer? I'm not sure how that, how that expression goes. Uh, so I think that this is part of the issue. Now, do I think that Kentucky will fall apart if this amendment were to pass? Of course not. I just don't think that it's necessary. I actually think that there are probably a lot of prosecutors who are against this law but they will not necessarily speak up because they don't want to be perceived as being anti-victim. I can understand that. But my bottom line is injecting and making the victim and their attorney as if they are a third party that's involved in this prosecution is, I think, uh, going too far. I think all of the protections can be there without that. Now, you brought up something that they complain about 
so what happens if the prosecution screws up and they're not notified, et cetera? Well, there are all kinds of remedies. And, and of course, the, the biggest remedy is at the ballot box because all of these people are elected. The Commonwealth attorneys are elected and the county's attorneys are elected. Now, that may not be satisfying because of how long it might take, but certainly that can be an issue. And then I think part of this is, does a community have a strong, what I would call strong victim social services? So for example, for purposes of abuse, we have the Center for Women and Children, and they have advocates in addition to the victims advocates that the prosecutors have. And those, those community agencies, if they are strong, they work with the prosecution to make sure you know, that people are protected. Maybe that helps. But obviously, you've looked at the website, and I have not. And again, I apologize for that. So what else? So one of the, the things they talk about is freedom from being harassed and intimidated by the accused. That a domestic violence victim, for example, has a right to the privacy of their information and that it be kept from the accused. I'm not sure why there is a need for this law. Don't, don't they already have that protection? Yes. Well, first off, uh, in all, particularly in an abuse case, the judge would enter an order that the defendant is to have no contact with the uh, victim. And obviously, and I must use a he, if he were to have that contact, is subject to not only contempt of court, but to further criminal charges. And we in Kentucky, very much so since I was a prosecutor, because this was not the case when I first prosecuted, but now we have a very substantial and elaborate system involving domestic abuse. The county attorney has domestic abuse victims advocates. They have domestic abuse prosecutors who specialize in that area. The Commonwealth attorney, the same thing. Uh, and so the court has all manner of orders and things to put into place to protect the victim. They also protect the victim's whereabouts. They can do that. Now, what sometimes happens is that family members of the defendant and others on the defendant's behalf, you know, will harass the victim. But that's covered by the court orders, too. Not only are you, you are not to harass the victim, but you should not instruct anybody else to or allow any friends, family, et cetera, to do the same. Those people can be charged. We have actual harassment statutes that are on the books. Uh, we have stalking statutes on the books, so we have all manner of laws that take care of that. Now, one of the things, though, to remember is part of, I think, with the victims is they can't keep everything hidden because the prosecution has to be able to make the case, okay? And our evidence rules require, and our uh, both criminal and civil rules require, that certain information has to be shared with the defendant, okay? I mean, that's one of the bedrocks of our uh, system also. The prosecution can't bring this case against you and not tell you what it has, not tell you what its proof is, um, you know, not share documents, those kinds of things. So as far as victims' privacy, there can be some limitations on that based upon the individual case as to what information does the prosecution have to share with the defendant and his counsel. Yeah, and that was another example that was given 
which was they gave the example of a child abuse case where the child was forced to make a deposition in front of the abusing parent and that Marcy's law would give the victim being the child in this case the right to not depose to not testify facing their abuser mm -hmm. and of course that's a really hard one particularly when it's children but as far as i know there are rules and arrangements that can be made you know one of the one of the bedrocks of our system is that the defendant gets to confront and that's the word confront the accuser but i believe we have a lot of things that are in place and court rules etc and evidence rules that allow for a child to testify in a secure situation even though the defendant may be able to hear what's being said and their counsel can hear what's being said plus uh, we also have some rules that allow the social workers and doctors and other people who hear certain things from children can testify without the child testifying. Those are all very, very specific. And because I'm not a prosecutor now, I'm not up to date on all of those things, but those are some protections. And let me give you an example. Even in a family law divorce case, what would often happen if in fact the children were going to testify and we did everything possible to make sure in a family law case, a divorce, that the children didn't testify. What the judge could agree to do is to allow the children, depending on their age, because we have some rules about how old you need to be before you are allowed to testify, to go into chambers. And generally, in those chambers, those children would have their own attorney or there would be a friend of the court who would be in the chambers to ask questions. We then would be back in the courtroom and the monitors would be on and we could watch and hear but not be in the same room with the children who were talking to the judge. Uh, so there are those kinds of arrangements and there are other rules and regulations that protect children in testifying if necessary in any kind of actual criminal uh, case. Mm -hmm. Another uh, point that they make is that in this amendment proposal, they are asking for full restitution that it be paid by the convicted party to the victim and they said that the way things work now and they gave the example of a guardian who was siphoning money from the person he was taking care of and that that guardian was taken to court and found guilty and had to pay full restitution but all of the money went to pay for court fines and fees and none of it ended up with the victim. And they say this is a way of making sure that the victim is the one receiving the full restitution and not the judicial system. All right, here's what I would say to you. In Kentucky, uh, there would not be any court fees, okay, that would cause that problem, okay? Court fees in Kentucky don't cause that problem. As to restitution in a criminal case, as part of the sentencing, a judge can order that restitution be paid, okay? And that the restitution be paid to the victim, okay? Now, there's a difference in money or property that might be taken 
And let's say a victim of an assault might have medical issues, medical expenses, et cetera. All that can be separated out in a civil suit, but there's only so much that the court can order. Uh, in other words, you can order a defendant to pay restitution after he gets out of his sentence. But so if somebody gets sentenced for 10 years, they're going to owe the money that the court ordered. But obviously, you're not going to get any money for 10 years if they're in prison. So again, you know, all of these cases are different. The facts are different. But restitution can be ordered by the court. And in your guardian case, the only thing I can think of there was going on where there's some attorney's fees that had to be paid out of the money. We just don't know enough of the facts, but that's not enough to say that there should be a Marcy's Law. That's just not going to happen. I, I wanted to find out, too, when in the beginning when I asked, well, what is the definition of a victim and what is the definition of a crime? Because I noticed on um, other websites that were not Kentucky, but other states like Nevada, they, they were talking about the definition of crime being so ambiguous that it could refer to misdemeanors or it could refer to a traffic violation like a fender bender. And then you get into this big complicated process with all the victim's rights and it just doesn't work for that kind of a, a an offense, a violation. I, is that true here with this amendment that the term crime refers to a misdemeanor or a traffic violation or something? Well, something like well that? crimes are both misdemeanors and felonies. So violations are violations. They're not crimes. They're just like traffic violations, but they're not crimes. You kill somebody with your car, that can be a crime. You could be charged, for example, with reckless homicide. That's what's happened, you know, with drunk drivers who've killed people with their cars. But, you know, if you um, just have a traffic violation, that in and of itself is not a crime. But if you if you hit somebody, if it's just a traffic accident, there can be a victim, whoever was hit and it wasn't their fault. But those wind up being civil suits where people sue each other. And then obviously restitution, money paid for medical bills, et cetera, all those things uh, happen. Again, one of the questions always is with any kind of law or statute is, is it what we call void for vagueness? It's so vague, you're not sure what do the terms mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in other words, somebody who just had a fender bender would not be considered a victim in this case of Marcy's Law. And should not be. Right. <laughs> and should not be. You bump into my car in the parking lot, I can be the victim if, if you caused it, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay. Now, I know that the big argument that they use has to do with secondary versus primary, and that if it's only in a state statute, that anything in the Constitution that might conflict with the state statute, the Constitution trumps the state statute. Right. And, and so they feel that the victim always receives secondary consideration if there's any indication of a conflict, the victim gets the secondary consideration and the defendant gets primary. I guess part of my answer to that is, and there's still some vagueness about all that, but here's part of my answer that criminal law is very, very specific, okay? And it has to be very specific because think about what we do with criminal law and criminal prosecution. We are taking away 
people's ability to live free because we're going to put them in jail are, as in the, in Kentucky, we still, unfortunately, in my mind, have the death penalty. We're going to take away their life. If we're going to do that, we need to be very, very, very careful. And we need to follow the rules and we need to have very specific rules about that. And so that gets back to what I was saying at the very beginning. I don't think that the victim, while we need to protect the victim and give the victim this victim bill, bill of rights and have victim advocates, I don't think this victim should be on the same level as the prosecution for purposes of dealing with the defendant. In other words, so right now when there is a criminal charge, it's going to say the Commonwealth of Kentucky versus John Doe. In essence, what I believe that this amendment is out to do and the people that are pushing this earth, it would be the Commonwealth of Kentucky and Jane Doe versus versus John Doe. And I don't I don't think we should have that. Okay. Right. And if we were to put this into our state constitution and we encountered problems, how easy would it be to fix? Not easy at all. (laughs) Not easy. Keep in mind prohibition. Prohibition was on the books a long time, even though people didn't, you know, people didn't follow it after it was passed and it went on for a long time. We had to have another constitutional amendment to get rid of it. So to get rid of a constitutional amendment, we're going to have to have another constitutional amendment. And we can only have two on the ballot in even years, like this again, 2018, 2020. So again, we're limited in what we can do. And we certainly don't want to have to have then another constitutional amendment if we find out this isn't working. That's why I say, let's look at the Victims' Bill of Rights, see if there is additional legislation, legislation, not a constitutional amendment, that could enhance or help the Victim Bill of Rights and not cause the issues that I've talked about previously. That's what I would support. And this added amendment comes with no additional funding either. Right. And there are costs that are associated with this. Is that right? Yes. And you are listening to Election Connection with me, your host, Ruth Newman, here on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, the cure for the common radio. Here, the audience-presenter dichotomy is bridged again and again through your participation, your input, and also your financial support. Go to forwardradio.org and click on either or both the Participate and Donate tabs to make your issues, concerns, experiences known, and to support local, non-commercial, all-volunteer community radio. Now, on today's show, we are engaging the expertise and past experience of Dee Pregliasco, former judge, retired attorney, past president of the Louisville League of Women Voters, and current vice president of the Kentucky League of Women Voters. She's a current mediator and instructor at Brandeis School of Law. And she is here to walk us through the two proposed constitutional amendments that you'll be seeing on your ballot for the upcoming election. We've just finished going over the proposed Amendment 1, 
often referred to as Marcy's Law. If you missed the first part of the show on Proposed Constitutional Amendment 1, you may still hear it starting Monday, October the 5th, by going into our archives available on our website, forwardradio.org, clicking on Programs and selecting Election Connection. It should be right there on the playlist. And now it's on to Proposed Amendment 2. Okay, very good. Well, let's continue on with the second proposed constitutional amendment, which is on everyone's ballot. And I will just read it. So this is Constitutional Amendment 2. Are you in favor of changing the terms of Commonwealth's attorneys from six-year terms to eight-year terms beginning in 2030, changing the terms of judges of the district court from four-year terms to eight-year terms beginning in 2022, and requiring district judges to have been licensed attorneys for at least eight years beginning in 2022? And then they go on to put in the whole legal language of it. So what do you think about that? Well, let me tell you, um, all of these terms that exist right now came into being with the judicial reform article that we passed as a state in 1976. And some portions of it didn't go into effect until 1978, but it was passed in 76. In that amendment then, district judges had four-year terms. Again, that particular group of judges didn't start until 78, but they only had to have two years of experience. There was really a hue and cry that that was not enough. And I think people have realized over the years that that certainly is not enough. Uh, Supposedly, it was part of a compromise because out in the state, there are not as many lawyers in some communities, and they wanted to make sure that they had enough people Uh, who would want to even run for this job or run for these judgeships. So there was this compromise, uh, supposedly, at least that's what I've been told by several people who were involved in this. To get the amendment passed, they agreed to this lesser amount for district judges of two years. So certainly that aspect of it, that they would have to have eight years of experience, I think is terrific. The reasoning behind the increase in the terms of the Commonwealth attorneys and the county attorney is because of the judges, the circuit judges, having, in other words, eight-year terms. The idea is that these are the prosecutors that work in their courts, and therefore those terms should be the same too. And so, again, that's why I presume that the push for the district judges to have eight-year terms too. I think part of it is the cost of judgeship elections have gone up. We were always, we're constantly having elections. Uh, so that's some of the criticism. I, I read about a criticism that says, well, it just stretches out the lack of accountability. But we do have a system where you can make complaints against judges. Uh, judges are subject to the Judicial Retirement and Ethics Commission that they have. So it doesn't mean, and you'll see periodically that judges actually have been, shall we say, almost thrown out of office or they've retired. Uh, are they been reprimanded and dealt with? So that in of itself, overall, I would support this amendment. Uh-huh. Because I did read that it has been lobbied for by district judges. And also, like you mentioned, 
that it would lessen the accountability to the public. Right. So. Let's face it, that, that's a downside. It's why some people complain about the federal system where judges are appointed for life. The good part of that, though, is that it has, I think, insulated them from the politics, you know, pressure in the politics. And so that's good. What maybe we need to think about in that area is maybe there should need to be some mandatory retirement ages. You know, we could deal with that issue. I think we could take care of life appointments with that issue. But overall, I don't think that this is a bad amendment. Increasing the circuit court clerk and the Commonwealth's attorney, it wasn't the county attorney for that matter, at the beginning, they were not going to do that until 2030. And then the district judges and the county attorneys were going to move from four years to eight years. And that would not happen until 2022, since it was spread out some. Well, that kind of moves me into the realm of how does one make an informed decision when voting for a judge? I think that it's just really hard to do. You know, usually what I find when I look up judges to see who I want to vote for, I get their address, their educational background, their years of experience, but that's it. I don't get anything at all about what it is that they did during their time on the job, what Mm -hmm. their judicial philosophy is, their temperament, their style. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that because I still don't feel adequate in being able to really know who to vote for. I know there's a group called Citizens for Better Judges. Yes. And as a matter of fact, just before this interview, I tried to get on the website. It doesn't exist right now, apparently. And there are no recommendations that I could find on Google from Citizens for Better Judges. I think my first question might be, who are Citizens for Better Judges? What is their makeup? Well, let's sort of go back a little bit. And I would say to you is, you were right, and and you know that I was a judge for a short period of time because I was appointed and then had to run and won the primary and lost. And what people needed then and they still need now is, you're right, more information. So how does that work? First off, most people ask their family and friends, and if they know lawyers, they ask about judges. A couple of things. Citizens for Better Judges started as a group of both citizens and lawyers who interview candidates and then say, we're supporting this candidate over this candidate. So they do do that. And there's only one judicial race on the ballot this fall, and that's for family court. Ellie Kerstetter was appointed by the governor back in, I think, March. And there was no primary, so there are two opponents, uh, people who've run for judge uh, before. At the moment, uh, I can't think of their names. They're right here, Lori Goodwin and Darren, Darren Neal. Yes, right. So you have Citizens for Better Judges. Also, the Louisville Bar Association has a judicial poll or evaluation, I should say. They are evaluated by attorneys, but the poll itself is public, so you can use that. So even though the original ethics provisions in the United States primarily and also in Kentucky were that judges were not to say how they would rule on things, to keep them impartial, Basically, when I ran for office, you know, what you did, you got up, you said who you were, you gave some of your background, family members, your education. And when I was sitting as a judge, I could say, I've been there, and I'm doing this, blah, blah, blah. 
those rules have been lessened slightly. Now you can actually, and I hope I'm not wrong about this, I'm pretty sure this is right, you can actually uh, say what party you belong to, whereas I never said that when I ran. And so you can move a little bit into some opinions, but not like, well, okay, if I get a case of A before me, I'm going to rule this way. You can't say that. And we don't want that because judges are supposed to be impartial, hear all the facts, and then make a decision, the facts and the evidence, I should say, and not prejudge what should happen. Now, I will tell you this, the League of Women Voters sponsored the uh, district court judges were up for re-election several years ago, and we had a primary judicial forum where they came to the League and answered questions. And then after the primary was over that fall, we had another judicial forum and uh, they answered questions. Sometimes the defense bar, because of the work that they do in district court, they will have meetings and um, invite the judges to come also. I think the hard part is this, and they actually can advertise. In other words, you will see, depending upon how much money, and I will tell you, the difference is Judicial races now will cost upwards of several hundred thousand dollars. The first race I ran in the 80s, I spent 15000 So you see how things have changed. Wow. Yes, exactly. But you're not going to see the ads and the kinds of things that you see for political you know, offices like governor or obviously president or senator. I think as a citizen, I think you have to do a little more digging and being aware. What we know as when we were candidates is that there's a drop-off. That is, if 100 people voted for governor, you might only get 25 people that actually voted for the judges because, again, they say, well, I don't know who these people are. So I think you have to be a good citizen and do some you know, investigation on your own. There's always information in the newspaper. Uh, and nowadays with the internet, candidates can have a website and so they can put themselves up, you know, on the internet. They probably have Facebook pages. I haven't checked anything out uh, yet for this fall. They can have websites. So there are lots of ways to get information. And one of the best is to ask family and friends and lawyers that you know, who've had contact with the judicial candidates. And that's critical. Something that's coming right up this Thursday that you won't want to miss if you are in that district is a judicial candidate forum. If you go to the Louisville Bar Association's website, here's what you'll find. On October the 1st at 4 o'clock, the Louisville Bar Association and Jefferson County Women Lawyers Association will co-host an online forum for candidates in the special election for Jefferson Family Court Division 3. Three candidates, Lori Goodwin, Ellie Kerstetter, and Darren Neal will discuss their qualifications for the position and answer questions from moderators. All three are vying for the right to serve out the remaining two years of the term of Judge Deborah DeWeese, who retired at the end of last year. Pre-registration is required, so those interested in participating can be sent a link to join the forum. So you have to go to the website to register or call this number, 502-583-5314. 
Yeah, and when it comes to these two associations, the Louisville Bar Association and Citizens for Better Judges, are these attorneys that are members, both from the prosecution and from the defense, both sides? And keep in mind that judges have civil cases too. Yes, the Louisville Bar Association, to join the Louisville Bar Association, you have to be a lawyer, basically. They they actually have a sort of an attached group of paralegals they can join and experts like accounting people and financial people. But yes, it is an organization for Louisville lawyers, but you can be a lawyer out of the state and belong. If you are a lawyer practicing in Kentucky, you have to belong to the mm-hmm. Kentucky Bar Association. The Citizens for Better Judges has lawyers as well as citizens who are members. And I sure hope that they will appear again on the website because at this point they don't exist, (laughs) except in previous years. The most recent that I was able to find was 2018, but nothing Uh, current. I'll tell you what, I know some of those lawyers, so I will try to find out and see what they've done. Like I said, there's just the one judicial race this time. And you were saying that like the League of Women Voters had some sessions where they asked judge candidates questions. So it is possible to ask questions that don't go into an actual decision, but that go into more process-oriented or philosophy-oriented kinds of matters. Is that true? Well, well also uh, reforms that might be needed in the courts. Uh, So, for example, I remember because I helped moderate the legal and voters judicial forums that we had, like I said, several years ago. I say several years ago. It's it's when all the district judges were up for re-election. And I think that was I want to say it was 2018. Uh, I'd have to go back and check. But so, for example, you know, the issue of bail has become in the headlines, as in people who can't put up a thousand dollars and they languish in jail. And so we have a bail project in Louisville where people have contributed money so people can get out of jail so they don't lose their kids, they don't lose their jobs while they're waiting to take care of their case. So we ask questions about that. We might ask a question, we'd say, we've heard these criticisms of district court. You know, what would you do to alleviate this problem, whatever it might be? Yeah, in that sense, you sort of hear the person's philosophy in the process. So we're not directly saying, do you support A or B so much as in asking these questions about the system, you find out where they stand, uh, what they support, and what their, I think, what's important, what their values are. Right. I don't suppose there's any comparable group of defendants and victims who have gone before various judges there's no website like that or any organization out there. Well, I presume you mean some organization other than, say, us, the legal women voters, our defense attorneys, our the Louisville Bar Association. Not that I know of. Certainly, I will tell you this, there are, shall we say, endorsements. The FOP gives endorsements to judicial candidates. Labor unions give endorsements. Some of the pro-choice people do, some of the anti-abortion people do. So there are various groups all over town who judicial candidates can try to get their endorsements. 
Well, very good. That's good to know. I wonder now that you mentioned that whether Vote Smart also would include judges. I don't know because they're a national organization. Yeah. <laughs> but I know that they spend a lot of their their website space on endorsements that come from different causes, different advocacy organizations. Uh-huh. Probably not. I mean, I've seen some national news that got involved in various states, particularly on the, the high court level, the Supreme Court of the state. So, for example, I don't know how many years ago this has been, a judge whose last name I do remember was Byrd was defeated for the Supreme Court of California. And then there was another one involving a judge down in Tennessee. And there were campaigns to get rid of them based upon what I would say were terrible grounds because, you know, sometimes people get upset because a criminal case is overturned. And generally it's not overturned unless there's good reasons to overturn it. Sometimes the prosecutors, you know, have not done a good job. You know, they've made mistakes. Sometimes the judges have made mistakes. And so the appeals court may throw out a conviction, but almost always those cases go back to court and, you know, then are retried, they're heard again. But sometimes people get all bent out of shape and angry, then will go after the judges who have reversed these cases. Even It doesn't matter that there were good reasons and they should have been reversed. Remember what I said, criminal law especially is very specific and we need to make sure we follow all the rules if we're going to take away someone's life or their liberty. Very good. Well, unless you have anything else to add, I, uh, I think that closes this time out for us. And I thank you so much, Dee. I will look up again, talk to my friends and try to find out more for you for Citizens for Better Judges. Now, I did see this. I did get an address for it. See what it says for the, yeah, the website was not found. That's probably what you looked uh, Yeah, that's what happened to me. Uh, Right. Uh, Let's see if they list, they do list a number. I tried uh, calling that number. And you didn't and get anything? It goes to a private individual who is not connected with Citizens for Better Judges. Anyway, I'll try to find out for you and let you know. Okay? Good. And I will make that announcement over another program. Thank okay. you. Well, and listen, I do want to say one last thing. You know, uh, talking about voting, the League of Women Voters is still working on its outreach campaign so that former felons who have had their voting rights restored, that we can get them registered and make sure they have IDs. So uh, they can call the legal and the voters of Kentucky or Louisville. Those numbers are easy to find and we can help people who've had their voting rights restored. And of course, you've had me on here about redistricting and we're still working on redistricting. So very good. Good for another time. Okay. Yes, it is. And as a matter of fact, I've been wanting to have a show on restoration of felon voting rights. And I've been trying mightily to get hold of anyone at the Department of Corrections. So far, I've gotten no results. Nobody's gotten back. Okay. But well, yeah, I want to have a show on that. Thank you, Dee. Well, all right. Thank you for being on my show. That was Dee Pregliasco, retired attorney, former judge, past president of the Louisville League of Women Voters, and current vice president of the Kentucky League, who also teaches at the Brandeis School of Law. And she was explaining the two constitutional amendments that appear on the ballot for this upcoming election. Now, as we draw nearer to the general election, let's go through the checklist. 
Have you made sure you're registered to vote? The deadline for registration is Monday, October the 5th. Have you requested an absentee ballot? The deadline to request one online is Friday, October the 9th. In either case, go to GoVoteKY.com to check your registration status, to register, to apply for an absentee ballot, or to check the status of your absentee ballot. Ballots should start being mailed to voters who've already requested one beginning the week of September the 28th. Once you've received your ballot, you can fill it out and mail it in. And starting October the 13th, you can either go in person to vote or you can drop off your absentee ballot into several secure drop boxes located at several different spots. One is the Kentucky Exposition Center, 937 Phillips Lane, the Fairgrounds North Wing, or KFC Yum Center on Main and 2nd Street, or the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage at 1701 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard, and also the Jefferson County Clerk's Office Election Center at 701 West Ormsby Avenue. Now there's another center for voting on the east end of Louisville, but it's still under negotiation. So we'll have that information for you as soon as it's available. All of these locations that I just mentioned will also be open for in-person voting beginning October the 13th. There will be four additional school locations on the day of the election, and those are Ballard High School, 6000 Brownsboro Road, Shawnee High School, 4001 Herman Street, Thomas Jefferson Middle School, 1501 Rangeland Road, and Valley High School, 10200 Dixie Highway. These locations are open on Election Day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Also on the day of the election, November the 3rd, TARC is offering free rides that go directly to the Expo Center. These shuttles will leave from the 10th and Broadway Union Station. And don't forget, the last day to register to vote is October the 5th. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Stay tuned for upcoming Election Connection shows, giving you timely election coverage, information, and resources. Stay safe and healthy, and join us next time on... Election Connection!